On Sunday mornings recently, we have been involved in a series that we are continuing for a few more weeks at least, based on the theme of the 2013 Memphis School of Preaching Lectureship last March. That theme was the New Testament Christian. And there were various topics that were discussed under that theme, and we've been looking at selected topics, not all of them, of course, too many to deal with uh, uh, in a fairly brief series, but highlighting some of these lessons, and we continue with that uh, effort today as we look at the New Testament Christian realizes what the church is to which he has been added. The New Testament Christian realizes what the church is to which he has been added. This was the topic that was assigned to Brother Tom Holland, uh, one of the finest uh, gospel preachers that our brotherhood has been blessed to, to have. And we're blessed to still uh, have him, though he is in his 80s now. He is uh, still preaching uh, the truth, and this was truly a powerful presentation that he presented at the lectureship, a presentation I was privileged to hear as well as to read and reread the excellent manuscript by this same title. And so much of what I say today in this lesson will, uh, will draw from uh, points that he made and the basic outline will follow uh, the manuscript that he submitted for this lectureship. It's a, it's a very, very timely and so, so important lesson, such an important lesson that we understand and appreciate, especially with the challenges that the Lord's Church faces today how vitally important it is that we understand the church to which we have been added if we are truly Christians today. And if we are not and discover that we're not based upon the presentation that we'll make this morning from Scripture and based upon Scripture, it's our fervent hope and prayer that those who have not been added to the church of the New Testament will do so even today. It is certainly impossible for anyone who is honest in one's examination and reading of Scripture, to come away from that reading of certain passages without concluding that Jesus promised to build His church. There's no question about that. Look at Matthew 16, 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of that promise taking place as Peter and the other apostles preached the gospel of Christ for the first time, guided by the Holy Spirit to be able to speak in languages they had never learned, guided in truth and also with miraculous power that was needed then and not needed today to be able to communicate in many languages so the hearers could understand the saving message of the gospel as it was first presented on that Pentecost following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And the culmination of uh, those sermons, part of which is recorded in Peter's uh, sermon, a part of his sermon recorded, as he convicted, as did the others, those who were there, of crucifying the very Son of God. Many of them were cut to the heart and cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts 2.37. Peter's response is recorded to those who expressed their faith, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Some 3,000 souls responded to the invitation, and verse 47 says, They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In our discussion of this very important matter today, as I mentioned, we're going to follow the basic outline that our brother Tom Holland included in his manuscript, the Lord's identity and the church, the one essential to be the church, and what about, finally, the future, the future of the church? As we look, first of all, at the Lord's identity and the church, we have to go back to the passage that we noted, Matthew 16, 18, in that context, and go back a few verses to see how important it is that the identity of Christ and the church are closely associated, how important it is to associate the identity of Christ, to tie the identity of Christ, if you will, to the church that Jesus promised to build. In Matthew 16, going back to verse 13, you remember when Jesus, uh, as the scripture says, came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they gave him the various answers that uh, they had been hearing. Some say, uh, some say, they said, some say John the Baptist, some uh, Elijah, or others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And it was then that Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then we're back to verse 18. We noticed a moment ago. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Upon this rock, not Peter uh, the rock, though certainly that's a contention that is made. And the contention that is made is that the church was not only built on Peter, but it was built upon Peter and his successors. As Brother Holland pointed out in his excellent lesson, even if it were the case that it were built upon Peter, and it is not the case that it was, there is not one line of Scripture that says anything about the church being built on any one of Peter's successors. If the church was built on Peter, it is still built on Peter. And therefore, it cannot be built on any successors of Peter. But the church was not built on Peter. It was built upon the Christ. And the truth that Peter confessed here, without going into great detail, it is sufficient to say that the word for Peter is masculine, Petros, and the word rock in the text is feminine, Petra. And so the two cannot be referring to the same. You're Peter, the stone, the small stone, masculine, but on this rock, feminine, as rock in the Greek is just feminine. That's just the way it is in the Greek language. It's feminine. But upon this rock, what rock? The confession, the truth that you have just made. And the word there indicates not a stone, but a foundational stone, a massive, a massive rock formation. Upon this great truth, this identity, my identity that you have just confessed and confirmed, Peter, 
not by your own uh, determination, but revealed to you from heaven upon this rock, this great truth that I am the Christ, that I am identified as the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so the Lord's identity is tied so crucially to the establishment of the church to which hopefully you have been added. There are all sorts of religious uh, groups that have been, have been started by men. And so if Jesus is simply another man, another good man, and not more than that, if Jesus was not and is not the Christ, the Son of the living God, His church is no better than any other religious body that has been started by men and has no more authority than do they. And so it is vitally important that we see how the Lord's identity is tied to the church and that the rock upon which that church is built is the foundation that is Christ. As Paul stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Not Peter, not Peter and his successors. And incidentally, as Brother Tom pointed out in his lesson, isn't it, isn't it revealing that about 115 or 116 men can go into a room? 115 or 116 fallible men can go into a room and get together and vote and come out of that room having named a man who is then infallible? completely infallible, appointed as such by a hundred and so fallible men? How does that happen? No, it is not Peter, nor is it Peter's successors, but it is Christ, the Christ. And if it is not Christ with whom the church is identified, then his church is no better than any other any other religious group. We also need to appreciate that Christ, because it is His church and He is the Christ, has all authority over the church. To His disciples in Matthew 28 and Matthew's account of the Great Commission, He came to them and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now we'll get more from that heaven and earth uh, statement in just a moment. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he commissioned them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples, as Matthew's account says, of all the nations. Christ has all authority over the church. And that leads us to the next point. And that is the one essential to be the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the apostle Paul writes, For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body by the teaching of one spirit. The teaching of one spirit that is now here upon the pages of the New Testament. By the teaching of one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. By one spirit, by the teaching of that spirit, we've all been baptized into what? Several bodies? No, into one body body into one body and that body is referred to 
repeatedly in one of the greatest treatises on the church in the New Testament, and that is in the Ephesian epistle. Ephesians refers to the church as the body of Christ. Now notice we've already seen Paul wrote, we've all been baptized into one body. What is that body? The Ephesian letter makes it abundantly clear that that body is the church. What church is it? It is the church. It has to be the church over which Christ is head. That's absolutely essential, over which Christ has all authority. And we'll talk in a moment about how he exercises that authority over his church. But look at it. Ephesians refers to the church as the body of Christ in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And he, God, put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church, which is his body. In Ephesians 3 and verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And then when we look over at Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 23 and 24, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Church and body used interchangeably there. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The church, which is his body, is subject to Christ. The emphasis upon Christ as the head of the body is clearly seen in these passages. We can go to the Colossian letter and see a similar emphasis there. In Colossians 1, verses 17 and 18, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body of the church. There it is. He's the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the what? The preeminence. That in all things he may have the preeminence as what? As the one who created this universe, he is the creator of the universe. All things were created through Christ. He is also preeminent over the church, his body, his body. Brother Holland makes this statement in his manuscript, the Lord is preeminent in the created universe. However, in the universe, not all things function according to the purpose of their creation. Most everything does. The sun is, uh, is just where it needs to be. It's carrying out its function, and it will be till the Lord speaks it out of existence as he spoke it into existence. The moon, 240,000 miles away from earth, creating gravitational pull with the tides that keeps the ocean waters from becoming completely uh, stagnant and pretty stinky. Uh, if everything like that happened, it'd be pretty bad news, wouldn't it? But what keeps all that moving? The tides. What keeps those tides going? The moon. We've mentioned before that if you moved it in by 10%, we'd have tidal waves over the earth two or three times a day of between 35 and 50 feet high. It's right where it needs to be. It's carrying out the purpose for which it was created as it was spoken into existence and placed there through the Christ, the Son of the living God, as the Bible makes abundantly clear. But, as Brother Holland points out, not all things function as they were created to function, namely two entities. Sinful angels, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, cast down to Tartarus, as that passage says, Jude 6, and also sinful people, 
as the context of Romans 3, 10 through 23 reminds us culminating with the statement that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what do we have? Those who do not function according to their purpose in today's world are just that. They are the world. The world is the mass, as Brother Holland puts it, of mankind separated from God by sin. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Your sins have separated between you and your God, the passage says, and therefore alienated from God. Alienated from God. That's what we have to understand and appreciate that the Scripture makes abundantly clear that those who are in the world, those who have not come out of the world, so to speak, are separated from God, alienated from God, and they are described as the world. But, thanks be to God, God has a power. God has a power to call people out of that mass of humanity that is alienated from God. What is that power? For I'm not ashamed of it, that power, Paul said in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, singularly, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then later in the Roman epistle, Paul writes, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. For those who are in the world, the gospel is glad tidings of good things. It is described in this text as the gospel of peace because it is the only thing that can bring about a restored peace with God on the part of humanity having separated itself from God through sin and being out here in this mass of humanity alienated from God which is characterized as the world. And so the glad tidings of good things bring people out of that mass of alienated humanity and calls them into another place. Those who obey the gospel are called out of the world and the word that is used in the New Testament to describe them is translated church in our English Bible. The word is ecclesia from ek out of ecclesia the call to call out. That's what the gospel does. It calls people out of the world, out of that mass of alienated humanity, out of that hopeless and lost condition. And those who respond to it obediently, those obedient souls have, have, have been reconciled to God reconciled to God. There's peace again between them and God. Listen to what Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, beginning, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ 
and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world, that's that lost uh, mass of humanity, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us, what? The word of reconciliation. What is it that brings about that reconciliation? It is the word. And then he goes on, now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Because, he says, for he made him who knew no sin, the sinless Son of God, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And when we've been reconciled, we're added to the saved body. The saved body about which the Ephesian epistle speaks so clearly and abundantly. Again, back to Ephesians 5 and verse 21. Ephesians 5, verse 21, Submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives, submit your, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ, listen to it again, is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. The head of the church, he is the Savior of the church, only he uses that figure of the body synonymously with the church. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. To what degree, husbands? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Gave himself for her. Doesn't Scripture say that Christ died for everyone? This passage says that Christ gave himself for her. Some translations say for it. For the church, is it inconsistent then for Scripture to say Christ died for everyone and then to say that Christ died for the church? No, because you see only those, only those who have submitted to the will of Christ as head and have been added to the body over which he has all authority, only those reach that blood. And therefore, it is certainly consistent to say not only that he died for all, but he specifically died for the church, for those who will avail themselves of the plan of salvation, reach the blood that cleanses them and adds them to the church. The one body with one head. And that is something we need to emphasize. Go back with me to Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in what? All things he may have the preeminence in all things. There is one head, but where is that head? He is in heaven. He does not have a vicar on earth. We have one head of one body, and that head is in heaven. As the Colossian letter makes clear, if then you were raised with Christ, Colossians 3, 1, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Our head is in heaven. But that brings up a question, perhaps. How can Christ function as head over the church when the church is here on earth right now? Now, one day it's going to be delivered up to the Father in heaven, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, but how can, 
don't we need a head here to help out on the earth? Some think so, obviously, but what does the Bible say? That's what we have to be concerned about. And how can Christ function as head over the church on earth when he is no longer on the earth? How can that be? Let me ask you, can you have any control over what happens on earth here after you have gone on? Is there any way for you to continue to exercise control over things that you had here on earth after you have gone on? Of course there is. It's called a will. It's called a will. And if you make out a will that is uh, legal and meets all the requirements, then when you're gone, you can continue to exercise control over the things you had control of personally and directly here on earth. We all know that. Don't have to be a lawyer to understand that, do you? Well, look with me at Hebrews 9, 16 and 17. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. What is the Hebrews writer declaring? He is declaring that we have a last will and testament that is authoritative, that was given by our head in part while he was here on this earth and spoke the things he spoke, but fully given as he guided through the giving of the Holy Spirit to the apostles and other inspired writers, the remainder of that will, guiding them into all truth so that I hold in my hand the means by which the head of the church continues to control the church here on earth while he, our head, is in heaven. And what a tragedy it is that so many in today's world ignore the last will and testament of the Christ, the Son of the living God, and spend so little time discovering his will. The head is in heaven but he left his will here on earth. And it needs to be said, and Brother Holland pointed this out, that as much respect as we have for the Holy Spirit, as a member of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the head of the church. The Holy Spirit is not the head of the church. The way some claim the need for direct operations of the Holy Spirit and that they're being led by the Spirit and there's so much activity of the Spirit they contend, one would think that the Holy Spirit is guiding the church directly and miraculously today. No. Christ is the head of the church, not the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit was used to communicate the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. And we have that last will and testament now but the Holy Spirit is not the head of the church. Remember Ephesians 1, and 23? And he put all things under his, Christ's feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Christ decides how one becomes a member of the church. Christ decides how we worship. And speaking of that, it's interesting that the passage in Colossians 3.17 where Paul admonished there, whatever you do in word or deed, 
do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That verse is preceded by one of the verses on music, the music that's authorized in Christian worship, isn't it? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let the last will and testament of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And if the last will and testament of Christ is dwelling in you with all wisdom, then you will carry out the latter part of that verse, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And this is not a sermon on music and worship, but it simply gives us the opportunity to point out that if we do what the head of the church has left us in his last will and testament, there is no possibility for including mechanical instruments of music in our worship to God. And when we do, we violate the will of the head and we disregard his headship. We, in effect, deny that he is the head who decides how we worship. Brother Holland pointed out in his lesson that at Memphis that in Nashville, there are all these groups that, I mean, it's not just organs, that'd be certainly a violation, but it's now evolved into everything, as he said, including drums. You, you have to have drums. He said it reminded him of the Quaker man who was slapped in the face by another man, and the Quaker responded to the man and said, I cannot smack thee back, but I can buy thy son drums. <laughs> I can buy thy son drums. <laughs> And that's a, that's a way to repay, he said. But when you open the doors, you see what happens. It is a violation of the will, the last will and testament of the Lord, to decide for ourselves how we want to worship, rather than letting him decide. Well, the point is, he has made the decision. He decides everything. He decides everything. And he has given us his decision on every aspect of our worship. How we become members of the Lord's body, how we worship thereafter, how we live. And we are not, we are not influenced by culture, but by Christianity itself set forth in the New Testament. Well, quickly and finally, what about the future of the church? The continual challenge is keeping the world out of the church. You know, it's like the illustration that's used. If, if the boat is in the water, that's, that's fine. But when the water starts getting in the boat, you have a problem indeed. Brother Holland made this excellent statement about the church at Corinth. It's an apt description of what was taking place there. He said, the church at Corinth was an island of spirituality surrounded by a raging sea of ungodliness. Unfortunately, that worldly sea splashed waves of carnality on the spiritual island to the extent that the isle was being influenced by the world out of which God's people had been called. And indeed, it was a situation that had to be corrected. But Brother Holland also pointed out, and I think we talked a little bit about this in Bible class, that denominationalism is dying. He cited a Barna research group study in 1997 that said their research revealed little loyalty now to denominations. And he gave this statistic also. The largest Protestant denomination claims to have 16 million members, but about 6 million are in attendance on a given Sunday. And he also mentioned a group he called uh, the nuns. 
the nuns, that is those who've left organized religion, now number about 20 million. In fact, at the outset of Brother Holland's lesson, he said, I, I want to talk to three groups of people. Uh, the nuns, those who have, uh, who have left uh, organized religion, those who are still a part of the, uh, uh, who are still a part of the church, but who are in the process of creating a new denomination. And I'll give you another statement by him in just a moment along those lines. And then I want to talk to faithful brethren, the faithful brethren who, who can always be encouraged and need to be encouraged to be strong and to certainly view the church, to paraphrase him, as we ought to view the church and to appreciate the church as we should. Because he pointed this out as well. He said, churches of Christ are being purged of those who either do not know the non-denominational nature of the church or they have forgotten or rejected the possibility of non-denominational Christianity. Since the Lord designed his church so each congregation would be autonomous, now is the time for every congregation to inform the city, town, or community that faithful churches of Christ are non-denominational and aspire to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in name, doctrine, worship, and life. And I totally agree with that. And we have to believe that there are still good and honest hearts out there who may have turned their back upon denominationalism, but in so doing they think they have also turned their back upon the church of Christ because they think the church of Christ is a denomination like all the others. And there are those in the church who are seeking to make it just that and have already achieved it in places, tragically. We are not among them here. We must not be among them. And we must still believe that there are good and honest hearts, as I said, with whom the restoration of New Testament Christianity plea can resonate and excite them and that they can be made to see that there is something there that is totally non-denominational. In fact, it is pre-denominational. It precedes any denomination that ever reared its head. It is the church for which Jesus shed his blood. It is the church he promised to build over which he is the one head in heaven ruling it through his last will and testament while it is here on earth, a church for which he will come back and take home to the Father in heaven when he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power and delivers the church, the kingdom, to God the Father. And one must obey the word of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved and added to the church that Jesus built that one church over which he is the one head and of which he is the Savior, Ephesians 5.23. And to become a part of that one church. This morning you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. All of that is clearly set forth in Scripture. Believe that I am he or die in your sins, John 8.24. Repent or perish. Jesus said, Luke 13, 3, Confess me and I'll confess you, Matthew 10, 32. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. Then and only then the Lord 
adds you to the church. There are churches you can join, man-made institutions that you can join, but the church over which Christ is head is one you cannot join, but to which he can and will add you upon your sincere and sweet obedience to his will. If you need to come home to his will, having once obeyed it and lived it, but you know today you are no longer living it, thanks be to God you have this opportunity to come home. There may not be another as we stand to sing.